Welcome to the One Small Change podcast with me, Dr. Simon Chard. I'm a cosmetic dentist, public speaker and startup entrepreneur, but most importantly, I'm a lifelong disciple of self-improvement and optimization. In this podcast, we present conversations with world-class industry leaders, sharing their expertise in high performance, spirituality, business and health. It's my job to dissect their key behaviours, routines and mindsets so that you can implement them today to create balance and success in your life. Today's episode is brought to you by Enlightened Tooth Whitening. As a cosmetic dentist, I've used Enlightened to provide tooth whitening results for my patients since I qualified. And the reason that I always come back to Enlightened is they guarantee that B1 result that means my patients are always happy with the outcome. So if you're a dentist, I'd thoroughly recommend reaching out to Enlighten to do one of their free online training courses. And if you're a patient, have a chat with your dentist today about Enlighten Tooth Whitening or even look out for one of their regional centres of excellence. Let's get on with the show. Hi, guys. Welcome to episode 14 of the One Small Change podcast. On today's show, we have Mr. Tom Reed Wilson. Tom is an actor, singer and TV presenter and after training at the Royal Academy of Music he's gone on to perform in theatre productions all over the world. Tom is the co-host of Celebs Go Dating and also hosts his own podcast Tom Reed Wilson Has Words With in which he interviews celebrities and explores the complexity of the English language. I first met Tom on the set of Celebs Go Dating while we were recording a TV advert for a well-known toothbrush brand. Uh, And Tom, it really is a fascinating and unique individual. He's got an incredible ability to make everyone he meets smile. Uh, And certainly doing my research on you again, Tom, I was watching videos back of you and it was making me smile and just reminiscing about our uh, our time we spent together on that set. We spent an awful lot of time, you and I, on that sofa, didn't we? Just getting very well acquainted because, of course, Paul and Anna were the guinea pigs, I think, for the product. And so they were furiously (laughs) kind of rehearsing with the product. And you and I didn't have all that much to do. We were just chatting, weren't we? Other than get well acquainted, (laughs) yeah, chew the fat and put the world to rights. And indeed we did. (laughs) Indeed, indeed. So it's lovely to see you again. In a very short spell, Mm. I felt I got to know you awfully well. Oh, same here. I feel the same way. And and since then, you've added two babes to your... I have. I have. Life life has got a lot lot busier. (laughs) (laughs) So um, I haven't seen you in a long, long time. How how have you been managing um, with the lockdown, with the pandemic? We're obviously nearing hopefully the end of the last lockdown now. Um, But how have you been getting on? Well, I think the thing I found most difficult is referred sadness or vicarious sadness, really, from um, industries that I adore. I mean, really, I would say that I have a great love affair with London. I live in London. Um, But most of all, a love affair with the arts and particularly with the theatre, which was the reason that I moved here to be... um, to be an audience member and to be a participant in that great world, because I am, as you mentioned in your lovely intro, an erstwhile thespian. And still the lion's share of my friends are thespians. And of course, that world has been so devastated. Um, And as a viewer, it's one I miss so desperately too, because I would be at the theatre about once a week. And of course, the terrible tragedy with thespians is that they're all self-employed, so the furlough scheme doesn't really reach them. So uh, feeling threadbare, I think, uh, in terms of artistic stimulation, but also in terms of just plain money, is... um, extremely difficult and challenging. So I've been doing a lot of work with the Theatre Support Fund and Acting for Others, which are wonderful charities, which are both umbrella charities for every aspect of the theatrical community and um, trying to bolster in whatever way we can, which I think is tremendously important. But I shall be front and centre come May the 17th when they open their doors. (laughs) 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, we'll make sure to add links to those charities in in the show notes. Oh, you, uh, that's dear of you. That's really dear of you, Simon. Yeah, because it's been. Uh, I think I think that uh, that industry has probably been one of the worst hit out of out of all the yeah, industries. Really. Yes, and you see, the thing is that um, those people that bring such great joy by treading the boards are. Um, just one part of the self-employed element. I mean, lighting designers and um, uh, uh, set designers and um, the lighting people and the stagehands and uh, everybody practically um, is not is not on a salary in that sort of conventional fashion. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So let's let's go back then. I, I always like to start the show with a a bit of an origin story. Um, oh yes, do. Why don't Why don't we go back to um, the very beginning? Le- let's Rich- go back to Pangborn. <laughs> let's go back to your schooling days. Oh, to um, and, and tell us about how you um, how you came to become an, an actor and and whether that was always something that you wanted to be or something that you fell into. How did it all start for you? Well. Uh- my parents moved to Pangbourne when I was about five um, from Bradfield College. And uh, my dad was an English teacher there. And sometimes they would put on a big show like um, South Pacific or something like that, where, uh, you know, basically the people that were playing the adults were young adults or, or children. So, if they were to have children in the play, they had to sort of go to the staff's children. And so I played um, a a little um, Polynesian Islander um, in South Pacific. And it was those children that sing Ditemois. I don't know if you know that song. And I fell in love with Rodgers and Hammerstein and with musical theater and, um, I think that was the beginning and I was always being roped into shows there and I loved it. I loved it. And uh, I began to nurse great ambitions of kind of clutching a Tony at 20. Not a man, or oh, that too, but, <laughs> <laughs> but, but that famous Antoinette Perry or Tony for short award, which is the yeah. sort of ultimate on Broadway. And uh, uh, it was always, always the theatre for me. Uh, I didn't have any ambition at all beyond the theatre, um, but I so wanted to do that. What was it about the theatre specifically as opposed to TV or, or movies? Was it that sort of raw connection with the audience? Or yes. Yes, I remember once seeing wonderful actor Claire Higgins in um, a revival of Tennessee Williams' Night of the Iguana. And I lucked out with a very cheap ticket that was practically in the front row. And she swept past me in a scene and I smelt her perfume. And I thought, oh my, I'm in this world. You know, it, it was... It was so extraordinary how the fourth wall melted away and suddenly I was I was in there on that mountain, you know. And uh, uh, the excitement for me from both sides of the footlights, I've always felt that really um, the actor sends something out and the audience is asked to be an active participant in the theatre. They're not just ingesting, as you can in the cinema, and somewhere in the middle, sort of hovering over the orchestra pit, the performance is made in this sort of lovely synergy between actor and audience. And I think that's why it's so exciting for me. And, and the fact that, you know, uh, the more you know about making television and film, the more you know that it's sort of not shot chronologically. You know, the death scene might be shot before um, before the opening scene if if that's the location on that particular day. And um, knowing that, you know, this character is starting with you at the character's beginning and ending at the character's ending was always tremendously exciting to me. Um, yeah, and, that's and a lovely the, way to put it. The anxiety of it could go wrong. They could 
stumble into the orchestra pit or, you know, or, <laughs> or, or get the hiccups or fart or anything. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I mean, is that is that something that you've ever struggled with? You don't you don't Farting. seem to me from. <laughs> Not much. No, no. I bet no, like a no, trooper. More, more the confidence, more the um, uh, dealing with the anxiety uh, pre-performance. Well, it was a funny. It, it was a funny thing because at school, I used to hate reading in class because, or or, or performing anything in class because I felt like the audience, as it were. Um, could see up your nose and, you know, they were terribly close to you and they could see all the machinations. And uh, that, to me, had no magic at all. Whereas with a proscenium arch and lighting and rehearsal and all the things that happen uh, invisibly, really, to make a seamless performance, you could create something and it was the business of illusion because it seemed to be faultless in its way. Um, and um, so, uh, yes, I, I found something about the stage very liberating, um, which to me had no parallel in life, in even the performative elements of life or, or the school classroom or whatever it might be. And um, and so in a way it was liberating. I always felt that they could let their opinion be known, but not really until the curtain call. Then they could throw their tomatoes if they wanted to. But um, <laughs> but until that time, you were safe. You know, the, the, yeah. the mores of the theatre dictated that they couldn't do that. Yeah. You had the security of the, of the structure of the theatre, I guess. Yes, exactly that. Exactly that, Donnie. Interesting. Very interesting. I, I, I've, I've, as I said, I said in the intro, I've, I've done a bit of research on you for today's um, show and I've heard you well, I'm describe yourself. Well, I'm deeply flattered. I'm deeply flattered. I've heard you describe yourself as um, a few different things, as from another era or a cultural throwback. And I even heard you describe yourself as a bit of an oddity, which I thought was a bit, a bit mean. Um, <laughs> but, if, is it, but is this something that you've, that you've always naturally lent into? Um, or has your uniqueness ever presented challenges for you? Is it something that have you have you had this this um, this style this this natural um, effervescence from a young age? <laughs> um, that's interesting. That's sort of two pronged, isn't it? Um, the first prong about uh, I, I guess about uh, my own perception of my persona. Um, and it is true that I am a bit of an eccentric. Um, and I mean that in the, the kind of etymological sense of that word. I mean, the Greek roots of eccentric are ek kentron, which means out of the center. And I do think that in many ways, I, I live my life out of the center. I, I very seldom agree with populist views. I, um, I, I have never really um, adhered to um, many norms and conventions, um, not because I'm a rebel, but just because they tend not to fit me. And um, and I arrived at that state very, very early. But of course, I had all the natural human things of being acutely embarrassed about things, especially when people would point them out to me all the time. And I do remember it wasn't a complete uh, instant on a sixpence occurrence, but I do remember when I was about 16 having a, an epiphany of sorts where I thought, well, I can't change this. I can't change what I love and how I am and how I behave, nor should I want to. And therefore, I have to learn to celebrate it or nobody else will. And um, so I did bit by bit. So it sort of happened piecemeal, I think, over the next decade. And, uh, and, and now I do. Now I'm very comfortable in my skin. Um, and 
it has turned out in a curious way to be advantageous in many departments, not in love life, <laughs> but, <laughs> but everywhere else, <laughs> it's been. It's well, I think been I think fortunate. I think being true to yourself can only lead to. Um to inner happiness right i think i i one of my yes. big beliefs is is when what you what you feel inside and, and what you what you do and what you say on the outside are aligned that's where true happiness is i think anyone who tries to mask their inner natural being is destined to a life of um of sadness really i, I think, think that's depression i think that's very sage of you simon i think that's true i think that um the second there's a disconnect, um, then something starts to go on internally, which is either akin to shame or um, or or guilt or um, feeling inauthentic, and they're difficult feelings to reconcile, you know. And, and why would you do it? Why why would you do it? Because actually, the way you behave and and the way you are is sort of like a rather discerning lifelong cherry picking of what you've chosen to imitate i mean if you think about children the very first people they imitate is their parents and no child utters the first the same first word because something to that very young impressionable impressionable brain has struck a chord more than something else and that will result in their first word um and it's true for the entirety of our lives our brains will and our hearts and our souls will dictate what we imitate and how and how we fashion a character it's all to do with our taste really yeah Absolutely. But I, I guess there's a natural tendency to want to divert more to the centre so as to achieve some position of safety or security. Um, well, I, I think it depends on your relationship with the centre, you know, because mm. I think that if you are if you have been marginalised in any way, you might be naturally suspicious or or possibly even cynical about the center and what it represents and therefore yeah. you might you might start to actively deviate i think i've sort of oscillated all over the place <laughs> <laughs> i'm a great Absolutely. oscillator in many ways <laughs> <laughs> well you have to be right <laughs> well you do uh, uh, life is all about vibrations <laughs> <laughs> that's probably going to be the quote for the uh, show i think <laughs> um <laughs> <laughs> so um, talking of, of vibrations, we'll, we'll move on to vocals. Um, oh, I didn't know where you were going there. <laughs> <laughs> in, in 2016, you auditioned for The Voice. Um, and, yes. And, and unfortunately, didn't get any of the judges to, to spin their chairs. <laughs> no, I was a flop. <laughs> however, I, I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, that that um, journey, which many could view as a failure or a flop, as you say, yes. actually led to your career um, as a TV presenter and, and, and even on to Celebs Go Dating. Oh, so can you tell us a, a bit about that story? Undoubtedly, undoubtedly it did. Um, yes, I, well, it all started because I was appearing in a play, a terrible murder mystery play where I was supposedly a suspect, um, a suspect suspect, if you will. And um, I sort of thought, oh, I'm, it's all right. I'm bumbling along, working, living off the smell of an oily rag, as my dad always said, who was very tickled by my thespian penury. And, um, uh, and I thought, I've got to do something bold. So I decided on a complete whim to audition for The Voice and I think you know, Simon, that with the voice, there are about sort of five or six auditions off camera. Uh, it's a bit different to the X Factor because they just have 80 on the show or, or 90 or something like that that actually get to audition for the judges. And um, so I did that all secretly in the summer. And then I got on and I did. I flopped terribly. But the show itself were very generous to me because they said... You know, people that flop in the first round like that, um, if you're lucky, you'll get a piece of your song or, or 
something, but but not the whole kit and caboodle. And they were so kind to me. They played my whole interview, my whole backstory, my whole song exchange with the judges. So it was about eight minutes. And that served as a kind of, I suppose, a mini show reel for the for the lady that was then casting um celebs go dating. And she got in touch and um asked me to go to Line Pictures HQ, who were the production company that made it. And I had to kind of talk to them, but uh, on camera for about 45 minutes. And then that was that. And what was liberating about it was that they said, um, you know, we don't really know what we want you to do. <laughs> they said, you know, <laughs> you're kind of, we know that the agents have to be loving, but fairly earnest. And we want the other uh, element to be kind of jolly hockey sticks, but we don't really know. You're perhaps you're the welcoming committee, and so they said, "Do what you like, and um, and if it's terrible, you'll just be cut out completely." And I and instead of <laughs> instead of being frightened, I thought, "Well, how liberating!" Because you know, I can't really if I make a big blunder, no one will ever know about it. I just won't be there. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so, that is a nice safety blanket. <laughs> yes. I think in my whole career in the theatre and in television, I've never felt so easy breezy as I did that very first series because I thought, well, none of this matters. You know, I don't know what they want, what what they like, what they don't like. So I will just chat away, hope for the best. <laughs> And how many series in are we now? I mean, you've been there for oh, quite a few crumbs. years. Oh, crumbs. I don't know. Do you know, Simon? I, it must I couldn't be... find it online. Oh, gosh. I think I must be on 11 or 12 or something like that. Wow. I, I know. I I think I've done over 300 episodes. Amazing. Possibly, isn't And I mean, for, the, for those... Um, that, that don't necessarily watch the show. It's it's uh, obviously the the name gives away the the general idea. It's a, it's a matchmaking show for celebrities. Yes. Do you yes. feel Do you feel that you've you've gained? Um, and I, I'm sure the answer to this is yes, knowing Paul and, and Anna. But do you have any uh, relationship advice or knowledge that you've that you've gained or eked out from um, from being on the show that you think is is particularly sage advice for our listeners? I they talk a lot, um, Anna and Paul, about. Um, you can have very, very divergent interests, but providing your values are aligned, uh, then you could be well matched with somebody who has the most disparate interests to your own. And in fact, I almost, I almost would springboard from that into saying in, in my particular case, um, I almost Brave that the kind of disparity of uh, uh, of tastes and interests with aligned core values, um, mm. because I've always sort of wanted to go out with a doctor or a vet or a dentist, and um, <laughs> <laughs> and and sort of be their window into the arts. You know, if they sort of said, "Oh, I love the theatre, but I never know what to see," or something like that, then I could say, "Oh, there's this." fabulous play by this director that I so admire and this wonderful leading actor and, and kind of unlock something for them. And they could tell me about things that fascinate me, but I know so little about, because to be honest, I'm what the Germans would call a fuck idiot, which sounds very rude, but actually it just means that outside your fach or your, your chosen topic or subject, you know very little you know, the blinkers are on. And um, I'm very much like that. I, uh, outside of the arts and, and the media, I know <laughs> practically nothing. I'm very politically interested and I read the newspapers, but I, I have no other discernible skills whatsoever. Can't paint, can't draw, can't really play sport. I mean, hopeless. <laughs> and I mean, those core values that you talk about, are they... Uh, have you articulated them for yourself, I guess? It's something that yes. I've been playing with a lot in my own mind recently about, probably actually after my conversation with Paul around um, sort of value-led decision-making and, and that sort of um, concept and, and almost writing them down. Have you got core values that you tend to live your life by or make your decisions by? I think you have to ask yourself, 
what's so important to me that if I blithely invited somebody into my life, it would provoke argument every second day. And for me, it's things like, um, it's things like the environment and um, being green and um, my love of children and um, the amount of time I want to devote to the various children in my life and my love of the arts and the amount of time I want to devote to that. And I think that, you know, uh, then I, I think that um, if somebody were aligned on those things, and and I think political alignment is quite important because it, it wouldn't matter if you weren't politicized, but if you are, I think that would be jolly hard to go out with somebody that had wildly divergent political views. I, I don't see, I I don't see how you couldn't end up having a weekly row about it at least, you know, and I think that could be tricky. So I, I suppose those are the, the ones that um, are the sort of underpinning for me. Interesting that you started with the environment there. I didn't know that about you. Um, yes. That, that was such a core passion of yours. Oh, hugely so. I've got these Marimo algae moss balls all about my home, bubbling away, photosynthesizing all day long, offsetting my hopefully fairly minimal footprint. Um, I don't really... I don't totally not eat animal produce, but I only eat it really as a treat if I'm at a restaurant or something or or a friend's house. Um, but I don't ever have it here um, at home, I should say, because that's where I am, <laughs> just to be clear. Yeah. And, and where, where's that, um, has that? Has that been sparked by any particular um, research or, or exposure that you've had? Or is it something that's always been a big thing for you? I think it's just what we've witnessed, you know, I, I think in in our lifetime, because you and I are roughly the same vintage, aren't we, darling? I think so. Um, and just watching the increased frequency of natural disaster and those that are marooned and, and left homeless by it, and even in our own country where it's so clear that, that the jet streams have shifted their location and therefore extreme weather is happening and hitting more places inland because of that movement. And I think, you know, it's beyond, it's beyond dispute. And, um, and I, I guess one always feels a little bit like the counter argument is, oh, but aren't we a drop in the ocean? But actually, the ocean is comprised of many drops and it's all those drops that make up a narrative and i i think probably even more importantly a counter narrative when you can't trust an administration to do it all you know yeah absolutely well that's actually the the reasoning behind well one of the reasoning it's a multifaceted name but the the whole one small change name um yes. came from my um from my toothpaste brand which is a plastic free eco-friendly brand oh i um, didn't know about that so oh i must support you and get some yeah no I'll, I'll send i'll send some over to you but um that that whole one small change and uh, concept was around the impact that each of us can have in our consumerist yes. activities yes if, there, if there's no financial benefit to the companies of making green choices then they won't do it it has to be driven by business yeah for and them I, to actually make those decisions. Yes, I agree. And I, I, um, Biden has inspired enormous hope in me because, you know, um, we've heard it so many times in sort of pre-election narratives, but then to make it come true instantly with executive orders and to continue that rhetoric so vehemently, I think is extremely encouraging because I think that... Um, European leaders and others are starting to actually echo that because they think, gosh, he's really serious about this now, you know. Yeah. Yeah, no, that was one of the um, one of the great positive, well, one of the, 
in some ways, few positives that came out of 2020. <laughs> yes, it was probably the most resounding positive, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. What's your toothpaste called, Danny? I must get it. It's called Parlor. This is this is the oh, brand here. My, the you're hat wearing, I'm wearing. Yes, you're wearing a Parlor hat, I see. And it's sparkling <laughs> like a coruscating white tooth. Fittingly. <laughs> well, per... As, as I'm, as I'm sure you know, pearl means uh, sorry. Parla means pearl in uh, in many languages. Swedish was the language that we found it um, to resonate with. But um, yes, yeah, so pearly white teeth and, and pearl of the ocean was the the linkage there. One of my favourite songs, speaking of pearls, is um, the Tale of the Oyster by Cole Porter. Um, one day I shall have to sing it to you. Um, but it's it's about this little oyster in Oyster Bay who has big dreams to be on a very posh dining table. And lo and behold, a French chef picks him up and he ends up on that table, only to be swallowed by Mrs. Hockenheimer, who gets indigestion and regurgitates him back in Oyster Bay. (laughs) And so he ends up right where he started and he says, I shall never have delusions of grandeur anymore, you know. (laughs) He learned his lesson with her stomach acid. <laughs> That's a very, very interesting narrative for a song. I know. Well, you can always rely on Cole Porter for that. I love him and he's so deliciously naughty. He is, he is divinely naughty. Well, uh, talking of, of, of characters, uh, one thing that comes across, uh, I'm sure has come across to the listeners already, on this episode, Tom, is that you you are so upbeat, you're so charismatic. Uh, and I feel, as I said in the intro, that every, every time I see you talking to someone, you seem to bring out a smile in them. You have this ability to sort of um, share happiness with, with the people that you that you interact with. Is Do you think that's something, I mean, you must have down days like all of us. Is your happiness something that you've consciously made active decisions towards in your daily routines or or your mindset or is it just something that you think you're naturally blessed with my best chum and the mother of my god kids has a very um i I guess sort of a a rose-tinted spectacled outlook to life and we sort of bonded around this but i have to say it's not all squeaky clean we also have the raciest sense of humor that you possibly have and quite enjoy a good Anglo-Saxon four-letter word and getting a little bit sort of down into the gutter with our humour, I'm afraid to say. However, however, we're both quite chipper most of the time. And um, we were talking about it and sort of dissecting it. And we realised that we'd never articulated it before, but we sort of do the same thing, which is that if we do get out on the wrong side of bed, we switch it with our first encounter. So uh, if the first encounter uh, is needing a little bit of acting, um, needing for you to play the sunny disposition when it's not really in existence, that is where, for us at least, the artifice ends because if that little bit of artifice inspires a delighted reaction in the person that you're talking to, then from their sincere delight, the rest of your day is built. So then the second interaction is not like that. It's not, there's no artifice at all. You're still, you're still sailing on the crest of the wave of their pleasure and so on and so forth and it can mount and mount and mount so we always felt that it wasn't a kind of perpetual decision that you had to kind of take with you all day long it was just Mm. that very first decision yeah yeah that's brilliant i love that so you're you're in essence firing off positivity to then mirror it back from that first individual and then it's a positive cycle from there because (laughs) i don't know if you feel like this but I think that it's always magnified, really. If you if you beam at somebody and ask them how they are and, and you know, really want to know and engage with them, um, then people tend to be so delighted that 
they've been given that invitation to discourse, that then the delight augments what already would have been a nice reaction from them. And Mm. then yours is augmented. And it just, it really is almost infinite. I mean, I know it sounds awfully Pollyanna-ish to say this. It sounds a bit like a kind of lifelong version of the glad game. And uh, I wouldn't blame your listeners if they were switching off in droves. But it it does does work. It, It does really work. I mean, that isn't to say that, you know, I don't have a temper about, well, especially, as we were saying, about things like political injustices. I can get very cross. I mean, the number of times I've screamed at Nigel Farage on question time and things like that. <laughs> like blue murder. I mean, with with barely a clean word shoehorned in between the rude ones. <laughs> you know, so I, it does happen to me. But um, yeah. And, and of course, I get very blue. But actually, that's another thing where um, I don't advocate positivity in in spite of or at the detriment of other emotions. You know, I I think that it's so important to cry and to have catharsis. In fact, when I do find myself crying, sometimes I'll I'll really go there. You know, I have a glass of Rioja, switch on Ella Fitzgerald, and I will sob just just to indulge in it for a moment and to really get it out and say, well, this is what my body wants to do. I'm going to see just how much it wants to do it, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Well, there's no, there's no light without darkness, is there? You need the, you need the balance. Yes, as the Italians would say, chiaro scuro, which is, which is the light and the dark. We don't really have a single word for it like that. My singing teacher used to say that to me. They used to say, um, uh, you know, chiaro scuro is, is um, tonally everything that's in the voice. And um, if you know that, then I can say a little bit more chiaro and a little bit more scuro, kind of the light and the dark, as you say. Mm. That's great. I love that. Mm. Now, I want to talk a bit about your podcast. Um, You've had some amazing guests on there, just to name a few. Uh, Alan Carr, Ashley Banjo, Keith Lemon, Jennifer Saunders. Yes. Yes. Some really really amazing guests. Oh, people that I so admire. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Are there any uh, themes or traits that you've seen um, sort of repeated or common themes between those incredibly talented or very successful individuals? Yes, I think it's the desire to be a lifelong learner, really. Um, I think that's what most of those people have. It's sort of, you know, I mean, someone like Ashley he'll have a successful tour and almost immediately his mind will travel to what could be the next theme that will take me choreographically somewhere I've never been before. And so, for example, it might begin for him with a word. So the next tour is called um, Connected. And he suddenly thought, there are so many facets to that word uh, you know, in terms of social media, in terms of um, touch, in terms of intimacy. Um, and all of those will inform every single movement, which will then inform the way he choreographs and the way he's challenging his body. And it, it never stops, I think, for those kind of uh, for those kind of people. You know, I think they're always, their antennae are always up for um, how to broaden their horizons and how to ingest more and learn more and dissect more. Fascinating. And do you think that that constant striving can ever become a bit of a dissatisfaction for the for the now or the present moment? It seems like a very future focused approach, and which is which is pretty much exactly how I am, to be honest. Um, but I feel that sometimes maybe always looking to the next thing and to the future and to development can sometimes render you missing out on on the present moment. That's very true. But I think if you employ the caveat that it's not about forecasting, it's simply about 
what you've discovered that day. You know, if you think of it mm. um, as a as a piecemeal exercise, and that you know, it's not about how much you accomplish in one go. It's about what's being accomplished at each juncture. Currently, yeah, yeah. Then I think that you don't worry about that, and I think that's a good rule for all things. Actually, I think it's a good. Uh, rule for relationships that forecasting isn't terribly important actually it's sort of what each day holds for you and don't sort of plan past tomorrow if you can avoid it and I sort of I mean I I don't really have any professional advice because my (laughs) professional life has been utterly chaotic and I've just been lucky to land on my feet but um but it certainly aids my enjoyment of every project if I don't forecast, if I just sort of think, what if I, I, I sort of sit at the end of the day and I think, what have I learned today? What did, what did I take from that? And just try and have a moment to, to digest what's happened to you. Um, yes. Very important, I think. Yes, I think so. I think so. Um and I, Jennifer Saunders said it as well on, on the podcast. She sort of said, um, she said it as a rule for writing. She said, you can't do a good poo if you haven't really, <laughs> if you haven't really enjoyed your meal. And she, so she's sort of, sort of saying, don't leap to, to what the script must be if you're still living it, you know, if yeah. you're still relishing it and savoring it and trying to understand it. And I think that's true, you know. <laughs> Not that anyone really. Yeah, I'm not. I've not heard it phrased in quite that quite that way before. But that's that's brilliant. Well, you can depend on her for that. But I mean, yeah. I don't think anyone forecasts to the poo anyway. <laughs> I mean, I don't think much about try. the poo when I'm dining. <laughs> you know, this is going to result in the most wonderful poo. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh I, this this chat is going in all sorts of directions. <laughs> I know, I know. I'm a perilous um, guest. Why on earth did you ask me, Dan? You are. You're a tr- you're a troublesome, certainly. Um, <laughs> so, um, I want to. You've mentioned a few times, um, and I, and I think it's clear for everyone to hear that you you've got a, a outstanding vocabulary, and you have this uh, real passion for for language and for words and for anyone that follows you on Instagram they'll they'll know that you do um uh, sort of a word of the day post where you where yes. you discuss the um the, the etymology of of the words I, yes I really enjoyed the one I think it was in the last couple of days um of the the sourcing of the word orchid <gasps> comes from the Greek word orchis meaning testicle yes indeed it does um, and <laughs> uh, which which is why people get orchitis which is that sort of very uncomfy inflamed testicles um yes sounds, sounds very unpleasant but very, where, where does this love of, of words come from is it uh, do you have a do you have a, a latin or an, or an english literature background other than your um your uh thespian activities yes well my dad was um an english teacher before he retired of course and he was fairly late to fatherhood and i was the first and I was a complete accident. I mean, I think eventually a happy one, but <laughs> I was definitely a surprise. And um, and so as a result of that, when I arrived and when I started to be able to talk, um, my dad just didn't have another channel for children at all. He, he didn't have that sort of um, baby talk groove and, as a result, he spoke to me in the manner he would speak to his colleagues at Pangborn. I mean, uh, it was very complex. And one had to just attempt to ascend while all these polysyllables were raining down about you. And and uh, there is a theory that says, um, if you hear a word that you don't know, 11 times in context, then you know perfectly its definition without ever having read its definition. And so I was fortunate enough for that to happen to me. And then, of course, when I was a teenager, that was sort of cemented with this steady diet of the most wonderful literature. I always say I never had to learn to be discerning because 
my dad sort of was the funnel for it, really. Um, and so it was only when I was in my 20s and I really had started to choose my own books that I read a bad book for the first time. <laughs> 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 and I knew instantly that it was a bad book, you know. Yeah, it's brilliant. As I say, I mean, I... I like to think I've got a fairly good vocabulary, but I'm, I'm, I think in most conversations I have with you, I don't know a few of the words that you use. <laughs> Simon, I don't believe you. But, you know, I have to say, it, for me now, now that uh, I have some agency over it, it is about the etymology and about how when you investigate the etymology, every word becomes a story, which is... Uh, like you were saying about um, orchid and oh, and practically every flower. I mean, something like dandelion is actually dent de lion in French, the tooth of the lion, because if you travel south of the bloom, those jaggedy leaves look a bit like lion's teeth. And, um, the, and uh, testicle itself is another one, which um, comes from testis, the Latin root meaning witness, which is very logically in testify and testimony and attest and all those witness words. And then you think, well, mm. why testicle? Why has that got yeah. witness as a root? And it's because it's your little witness to semen secretion. So it's it's fascinating. Once you once you investigate and interrogate a bit, all these stories emerge. Yeah. I, I do find it really fascinating. It is um I love and and I love learning about uh, Roman history and and Greek history and and all of those yes. sort of things. I'm a big fan of the um, of the Stoic philosophies. Um, so I'm reading a lot around Marcus Aurelius and those sort of that sort of era oh, at the moment. Gosh. So um, yes, it's a uh, very fascinating. Well, and, and a lot of those um, Latin words uh, were, of course, Roman and militaristic. I mean, um, mm. something like um, decimated comes from uh, Roman armies when the deck is the the uh, the Latin root meaning 10 that's in December, mm -hmm. because once upon a time, December was the 10th month in the Roman calendar. And really? so decimated was um, when they would make an example of a failed army by killing at random every 10th soldier to make an example of them, to intimidate the others and hopefully up their wow. game. So it, it is, it's most extraordinary how they were sort of busily coining everything and sort of miscoining too sometimes. I mean, if you look at mm. old words, especially medical words like hysteria, hysteria has the same root as hysterectomy and it means a womb sickness because they thought um, that it was a, a kind of... Um, uh, excitability that was induced by a problem with the womb. And of course, they were completely wrong and it was deeply misogynistic. And yet the word, yeah, the word remains, you know, it's, it's wow. strange. It's really, it's really fascinating. It's really, really interesting. I'm, I'm, I find the whole, uh, the whole area very, uh, very, very yes. fascinating. Yes. I'm sorry to interrupt, darling, but matrimony, matrimony is another one because mattress is the Latin root meaning mother. And it was um, matrimony in those old misogynistic days was simply your passage to motherhood. So, th so that's what that word means, which I think now is ghastly. I mean, if people knew the etymology, yeah. they'd dispense with it instantly. I think I think we would be having a lot of words being cancelled yes, if, uh, if that was yes, the case. <laughs> yes, you're not allowed to use that word anymore. Yeah. Um, I've I've uh, I picked up a a quote from you um in one of our uh, one of my researches before this, and apologies if I'm uh, paraphrasing it, but um, oh. it was it was what you described as one of your mantras in life um that you you trust in everyone and accept that you'll get bruised along the way. Do you think that's a fair analysis of, of your mantra? Uh, yes. I think what I mean by that is that the odd bruising um, is inevitable, um, but it shouldn't make you, the awareness of 
the inevitability of bruising should not make you modify your behavior one iota. So you shouldn't stop being um, open and loving and um, and forthcoming because you're aware that being all of those things um, augments your potential for bruising. It, it's almost as though um, simply recognizing bruising as an inevitability is it. And then you just put it to bed and you behave as you instinctively want to behave. I think the trouble is that um, once somebody has been through any kind of trauma, romantic or or um, or just life trauma, um, one's inclined to uh, to, to self-protect. It's completely natural. It's, it's sort of a, a self-preservation thing. And I sort of, my advice or, or my mantra, as you say, is to kind of ignore it if I can and just say, no, go back as if it's a tabula rasa and carry on living completely without any sort of um, perspex wall. And uh, given your position uh, within the public eye and, and as a sort of television personality now, do you do you have to deal with a lot of negative comments, criticism, feedback at all on social media and that sort of thing? Is that something that, that again, sort of is water off a of duck's back or is it something that you um, take to heart? Like me, I've got a very thin skin with these sort of things. <laughs> well, mercifully, um, I haven't, encountered a lot of it. it it's uh, mostly touch wood been very um, generous and kind and um, and I think that um, there have been uh, rare instances of, of um, a little bit of homophobia and things like that leveled at me especially when I'm a new entity to people if I'm sort of on a new show that's a different demographic and a different audience. There'll always be a flash of that at the beginning and then it will then it will go. And then the people that are inclined to say things are generally inclined to say nice things. But but yes, but um, uh, yeah, basically I've been fortunate in that regard. That, that's that's very, very good to hear. I'm glad glad to hear it. Uh, let's talk about another show that you've been on, which probably did have a fairly different demographic, which is uh, Celebrity Best Home Cook. Oh, yes. A, oh, I skill, loved it. A skill that I, I wasn't aware that you possessed. And you, you said that you were very narrow in your skill set, but you, you failed to mention that you have these culinary skills tucked away. Oh, well, yes, I I, I suppose I do have that. Um but I certainly improved a great deal on that show. And actually, that was the loveliest thing about it was that you, you didn't really see it in the show. But um, every judge, when they gave their feedback, would always give a kind of a golden nugget of really helpful advice that one could employ for the remainder of their cooking life or career. And um, mm. so I learned. It was like a masterclass. It was absolutely mm. extraordinary. And of course, their backgrounds are rather divergent. You know, um, Angela, darling Angela is a restaurateur. Um, Mary Berry is uh, uh, a kind of a, a great exponent of, of all the tricks and wonders of home cookery. And Chris Bavin is a produce expert. So he knows everything there is to know about vegetables and about uh, about all manner of produce. And so mm. their respective advice was fascinating. So I was hanging on their lips, figuratively. <laughs> and um, you mentioned before that you don't tend to cook um, meat-based meals at home. And um, increasing my, my vegetarian and, and vegan repertoire uh, is something that I've been um, struggling with myself. Are there any go-to sort of tasty vegan or vegetarian meals that you uh, that you tend to default to? Oh gosh! Oh, oodles of them. Um, I do a very nice vegan cake actually, which is a sort of it's a bit like gingerbread, and um, it's olive oil, 150 ml of olive oil, 150 ml of vegan custard, 
um, about four teaspoons of egg replacer. You don't need that much of that. Um, cinnamon, ginger, uh, coconut nectar, about 250 milliliters of that. And um, whip up a good batter and then bake it for about 30 minutes at about 160 in a fan-assisted oven. And it comes out, when you have it warm, it's like, it's a bit like a sticky toffee pudding and you can have it with oat cream, lashings of oat cream, and it's absolutely divine, really sort of gooey. And then when it cools, it's like gingerbread. Perfect. Mm. Oh, I'll definitely try that one out. I'll have to uh, uh, get that recipe from you. Oh, I'll ping it to you, darling. (laughs) I'll slide into your DMs, as the kids say. (laughs) Okay, well, we're just about to wrap up. So let's um, let's dive into the the rapid fire round quickly. Uh, And and feel free free to uh, indulge these questions as much as you want. I shall put um... my metaphorical trunks on. <laughs> so, first question: What is your favourite word and why? I had to ask you this one. Oh, I think probably papillonaceous, which comes from the French <laughs> papillon, meaning uh, like a butterfly, because it you can use it in terms of you could say that ballerina um, moves in a papillonaceous fashion in a kind of literal way. But you could also use it metaphorically as sort of talking about a papillonaceous transformation in somebody. So I think it's very versatile and very pretty. So does it, is the meaning anything that is butterfly-esque yes. in movement? Yes, yes, yeah, or behaviour, hence the or behavior. hence the transmogrification. Yeah. Mm, interesting. That's a great one. Um <laughs> What what do people most often get wrong about you? Oh, I think probably my political views. Because if you're plummy, people tend to think that you're hovering a little bit to the right. Couldn't be mm-hmm. further from the truth. <laughs> <laughs> Super. Um, what's the best piece of advice you've been given and who gave it to you? My dad always says... Uh, don't dwell and reflect too much. Keep keep moving forward. Don't sort of get obsessed with things like school reunions and um, the yardstick of, of old comparisons. Just keep plowing on and keep moving. Keep on keeping on, Brilliant. I, I love guess. That. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. And lastly, what are you most grateful for right now? I think right now, my family, and that extends to my beloved friends who I include in that. My my very best friends are, are like an extension of my family because their calls and their Zooms and everything, since I've spent the whole of the last year alone, unless I've been working, um, have mm. sustained me. So I am ineffably grateful to them. I don't think I'll ever be able to successfully convey it really i think that's probably one of the biggest um positives to come out of the pandemic is is all of us focusing more on the the core relationships that are so important to us yes yes i think you're right darling i think you're right (laughs) and the last question is is one that we ask to everyone on the show to to finish off uh what is the one small change that you've made in your life that you'd wish you made earlier Oh, well, this sounds very silly, but actually it really, really helps me and my grey cells to dance. And that is to do a crossword every morning. Because if I do one every day and the I, the I newspaper's crossword is about my intellectual level. I can't go much higher than that because I'm not very bright in spite of the vocabulary. (laughs) Um, And... uh, That is wonderful. It's so stimulating. And I find that if I've done that after my run by 10 a.m. or 9.30, then my blood cells are dancing, my gray cells are dancing, and I'm firing on at least one cylinder. Not quite all, but but if I'm lucky, one. (laughs) 
I love that. Well, I wasn't expecting that as an answer. How, how long does it take you to do a crossword out of interest? Oh, it depends. They have about four authors, I think, in the eye. And there's one that just does not think the way I do, or I don't think the way they do. <laughs> and so I can never get yeah. them. But, but um, there's one that is hugely aligned with my frontal cortex. And, um, and his or hers, I don't know who they are. But... Um, uh, Theirs is wonderful. And that takes me about, oh, 10, 15 minutes. But the other one, the, the, the one that is um, very divergent in thought to me, takes me a good half an hour. <laughs> Brilliant. Which I love arguably it. I'm is and, better for me. Try and that myself. Yes, yes. Yeah, indeed. Yes, yes. Indeed. Well, Tom, thank you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, I don't think I've laughed that much on, on one of our episodes so really? much. So, um, it was, oh. A, yeah, it was. Oh, well, it was a great pleasure. And I think you're such a darling boy. Such a darling yeah, boy. Kind. And it's lovely to peer into your house a bit and see your stained glass windows and your Art Deco tiles <laughs> and your fronds. <laughs> indeed indeed well thank you so much for for coming on and uh, yeah look forward to catching up with you soon bye honey bye 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 hi guys simon again here just one more thing before you guys go thank you so much for listening to the podcast i really hope it gave you an immense amount of value if i could ask just one thing of you all please subscribe to the podcast please share it please write a review if you enjoyed it Please talk to your friends about it. The bigger the podcast gets, the better the guests I can get on and the more value I can give back to you all. So that's it from me. I'll see you on the next one. And until next time, enjoy the ride.